welcome to another ABI podcast. I'm Amy Quackenboss, the Deputy Executive Director of the American Bankruptcy Institute. Today I'm joined by Mark Stingley and Michelle Masoner, who are co-authors of ABI's newest publication, How Secured Are You? Mark is the global head of the Bankruptcy Restructuring and Creditors' Rights Client Service Group for Brian Cave. He's a fellow of the American College of Bankruptcy, a past education director for ABI's Secured Credit Committee, and a member of ABI's Board of Directors. He is a frequent author and speaker on issues surrounding secured credit. Joining Mark today in our studio is Michelle Masoner, who is also a member of the Bankruptcy Restructuring and Creditors' Rights Group at Brian Cave. She's a former law clerk for the Honorable Robert Berger of the United States Bankruptcy Court for the District of Kansas. Mark and Michelle, welcome and thanks for being with us today to discuss the new book, How Secured Are You? Thank you. Thank you. This book is a product of ABI's Secured Credit Committee and is authored by several members of the committee. So, Mark and Michelle, why did the committee feel that this book was important to produce, and who is the intended audience? Well, let's talk, first of all, how it really came together. Uh, Judge Michael Fagoni, uh, who at the time was not on the bench in Maine, uh, was the head of the project and invited several of us on the committee to uh, put together a book that would be under in under one cover would have a complete analysis of the issues that uh, lenders would face at various points of a, of a bankruptcy case. And uh, we started working about two years ago and have been through uh, a number of, uh, you know, analyses and rewrites to make sure that we got it correctly. And we think it does cover the waterfront uh, and is a very good analysis of the topics. And they were all thoughtfully put together. That's great. And so the purpose of the podcast is to kind of go over some of those issues. So in general, um, can you tell me what are some of the big issues that secure creditors really need to look out for when um, a debtor files bankruptcy? Well, you know, Amy, I think the best way to do that is just to give you what the uh, chapters are. And, 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 and I think you will see that we really do cover everything. Uh, starting with Chapter 1, uh, which is by Stephen Falangia with the Walsh, Pizzi, O'Reilly, and Falangia firm in Newark, New Jersey, uh, he talked about allowance and determining the amounts of the secured claim, which led into Chapter 2, which was decided, or which was written by Judge Mark Mullins, who also wasn't on the bench when this started. He is in the Northern District of Texas, and with the help of some of his former colleagues at Haynes and Boone in Dallas, Jerome Yates and David Staub, they talk about the value of collateral. So as you can see, it's flowing in, what is the amount of the secured claim, and then how you determine that value. That led to a third, our third chapter, which is by Annette Jarvis from uh, Dorsey and Whitney in Salt Lake City, and she has a very complete analysis of how you protect and preserve collateral. And really, it even goes beyond just a bankruptcy analysis. It goes into how you before the bankruptcy even is filed, you take a look at how you determine what the claim is about, uh, what issues can arise, how you can strengthen your position prior to the filing of the bankruptcy. Then uh, Damien Schleibel, Davis Polk in New York, along with uh, Stephen Perano and Michelle McGreal from Davis Polk, added a chapter on adequate protection, uh, went through a number of the issues with regards to adequate protection leading to the uh, Chapter 5, again by Judge Mullins and uh, the Haynes and Boone lawyers, David Staub and Jerome Yates, talking about the sale and use and lease of collateral. Uh, really, a complete chapter, I think, one will see regarding what are the issues regarding selling collateral. And I'll get into that more in depth here 
in a few minutes. Uh, chapter six was how you determine carve outs, surcharge, and priming liens. That again was written by Stephen Falangia of the Waltz Pizzi firm in New York, uh, Newark, New Jersey. Uh, chapter seven, uh, again by Damian Schleibel and Stephen Prana and Michelle McGreal of Davis Polk, talk about avoidance liens, avoidance actions, excuse me. And then we get into chapter eight, which Michelle and I wrote together on how we classify and treat secured claims under chapter 11 plans, which then led to a chapter nine chapter on secured claims and consumer bankruptcies, which I think was a really uh, something that if you look at other books regarding secured claims, there might be on business bankruptcy claims. It might be on, there might be a separate book on consumer claims. We really, I think, have added something here by having both the secured claims in Chapter 11s and Chapter 13s under one cover. And so, as you can see, it's a complete analysis. Uh, nine chapters, 284 pages of really in-depth analysis of uh, secured claims and bankruptcy. That's great. That's, I mean, it definitely sounds very comprehensive. So is it aimed at a, a practitioner um, or is it aimed at um, a business person? I think both would be interested in it. Obviously, uh, anybody who's, who's lending and, and taking a security interest in collateral, um, there's definitely practice pointers, uh, even before the bankruptcies filed, how to prepare your loan documents and, and nail down your security interest before the debtor even faces any trouble. But then definitely it's a great compilation of expertise and, and case law for the practitioner. And I would say it's an easy read. Uh, and, and it's put together where, as uh, Michelle just alluded to, a, a non-bankruptcy practitioner could read it and, and really pick it up very quickly about what the issues are and, and how to solve the problems. Well, let's drill down into some of those issues that you just walked um, through in the table of contents. Um, you, you said there's a chapter on valuation. Um, what are some of the biggest issues you see um, today as they relate to valuation secured claims? Well, first and foremost is you know, what's the purpose and use of the collateral going to be in the bankruptcy? And that starts your analysis. But then um, also what this chapter does is it actually walks you through putting on your case for establishing the value of the collateral that, that you want um, from uh, obtaining and uh, qualifying experts to uh, challenging counter experts uh, all the uh, steps of putting on the evidence to, to establish the value of your collateral. That's great. That's great. And then, you know, there are several instances of the book, the authors discuss the issues of secured creditors filing a proof of claim in, in a bankruptcy. Um, if you are a secured creditor and you haven't had a debtor file uh, a bankruptcy before, you'd think that your natural instinct is to have the secured creditor file a proof of claim. You're, you're, you're submitting something to the court that says, here's my claim. Um, why is this an issue uh, in courts? Well, and by the way, uh, Annette Jarvis covers this very well in her chapter uh, regarding uh, should you file or shouldn't you file a claim. Uh, in that particular chapter, let me just give you some high points that she talks about, Amy. Uh, she talks about the fact that, it, it, you know, you could be fully secured. But let's assume you're not fully secured. We get into the bifurcation issues about whether or not you will have standing if you don't file the claim, whether or not uh, you should, can make an 1111B election if you don't file a claim. 
and and then through case sites really takes us to the point of I think most people would come to the conclusion there's no reason why sometimes you probably shouldn't file a claim and uh, and I think answers the question from the very beginning in this chapter from the very beginning about should you should you or should you not file a claim coming to the solution that I just told you but it's not just file a claim it's you should file a claim because one two three four and as I said Annette goes into an in-depth analysis in this book about the reasons why you should file a proof of claim that sounds very very helpful um, for especially a secure creditor um, who is interested who has his first bankruptcy filed um, and trying to figure out what to do um, and also in several interest um, it, it also in several places in the book um, the authors talk about adequate protection can you explain that concept and when that comes into play and why it's important in bankruptcy cases sure it's really important um, it, it gets a whole chapter to itself in, in the book, but as you say, it's mentioned throughout almost every chapter because it is so pervasive throughout the uh, code and, and through the bankruptcy process. Uh, but the authors of the adequate protection chapter is our team at Davis Polk, who did a real good job. Um, at, and, and what adequate protection, as most practitioners know, is cash, replacement liens, uh, perhaps it's your equity cushion. It's it's the benefit of your bargain. It's it's the value you're going to get during the bankruptcy proceeding to, to protect you against the decline in value of your collateral during the bankruptcy proceeding. And it's I, kind of a trade-off. If the debtor wants to uh, retain the, the, the collateral and, and use it in its it, it bankruptcy, then it needs to um, provide the creditor with, with some value in, in return. For, and, and that's exactly the context that it, it arises in. It arises in uh, the sale, use, or lease of, of collateral. Um, if it's not being provided, it's, it's a basis for um, obtaining relief from stay and getting your collateral uh, released from the bankruptcy. So it's a key, um, key concept to really understand if you represent secured creditors in uh, Chapter 11 cases. Absolutely. Yeah. You mentioned sales. Um, that is an important concept, and um, secured creditors are always very interested in asset sales in um, in a bankruptcy, but what are some of the biggest issues that they face uh, when a debtor looks to sell its assets? Well, as you know, under 363B uh, and C, we, our first step is to discuss is it an ordinary course sale where you don't need court approval or is it out of the ordinary course? And there's quite an in-depth analysis in the book of the horizontal test versus the vertical and the vertical test to see if it's something that might be deemed to be an ordinary course sale. Uh, and after they get through that analysis and we move on uh, to sales outside of the ordinary course of business, uh, you have the business judgment test about whether or not it, it would satisfy the business judgment rule to go forward with a sale. Uh, also, they cover, and you should always take a look at whether or not uh, the sale of all the assets isn't really a sub-rosa plan, and the uh, chapter uh, has a... a, a I think a very good analysis of if the courts and if there are splits, which courts will treat the sale of all the assets as a sub rosa plan. Then they get into in the chapter, and this is very important, of course, in connection with any uh, sale, if whether or not you can uh, satisfy the uh, 
issues, or excuse me, the standards found in 363 F1 through 5. Uh, because if you can't satisfy one of those, then the sale won't be permitted. Uh, the, the chapter gets into F1, which is, is it permitted under non-bankruptcy law. It takes a look at the secured creditor consent issues, whether or not you can get implied consent from a say uh, the, of the creditor's actions. Uh, then it spends many pages discussing the split in authority on 363 F3 about what is the aggregate value of all liens. Is it the economic value of the liens or is it the actual value of the amounts that are owed? And, and if of course, there is some split there between uh, what Clear Channel said and some cases in some other jurisdictions. Then they talked about several pages worth of the bona fide dispute standards in 363F4, and finally, what constitutes a money satisfaction in 363F5. Uh, that's really the the nuts and bolts of what you have to do to get a sale approved is to make it comply with one of those. Uh, then they go into in the book, and as always, one of the issues: what are the typical timelines, and what are the typical type of uh, uh, procedures that are looked at in connection with uh, uh, an auction? Uh, how you determine your stocking horse? There's a checklist of what a stocking horse would would want to have included in an asset purchase agreement. There's also a checklist on uh, what you normally would ask from other creditors become a qualified bidder uh, and then they spend a, a deal a good deal of time in the book also on how you determine the highest and best bidder because as you might and we all know sometimes the highest bid isn't the best bid uh, there are cases where the second highest bid you can have immediate uh, cash satisfaction because the money's are escrowed somewhere there's a line of credit uh, that can be drawn upon immediately, so a lower bid could be a better bid if it can be closed in faster order. Uh, then they, there's a credit bidding section. Uh, they talk about the Radlax case, uh, uh, indicating that you can't, under 1129B, take away credit bidding rights uh, that had been permitted in several other cases before Radlax, like the Philadelphia Newspapers case. And also the, the issues regarding can you limit credit bidding, like it happened in the uh, Fisker Auto and the freelance holding uh, publishing cases. So as you can see, really this uh, particular chapter of the book touches on all the issues that come up, and and really all the issues that I think need to be considered. Yeah, I really like this chapter of the book. I mean, the book itself is very comprehensive and provides a lot of practical advice. But um, I remember my first uh, big uh, assignment when I first started practicing uh, law was I had to represent, we represented a bidder in an asset sale. And of course, I knew nothing about asset sales. I knew nothing about credit bidding. I knew nothing about, and, and this type of book would have been very helpful to me um, if I had it. So, you know, as, a, as opposed to just going and kind of looking up general information. I mean, this book is written by experts in the industry on this. And so, um, I, you know, I, it just hit me as something that would have really been helpful. So I'm, I'm glad you all touched on asset sales uh, in the book. Um, so, okay. Um, 
The book also addresses, uh, you mentioned, avoidance powers in bankruptcy, and there's a nice chapter devoted to that. Um, so what are the, some of the issues that secured creditors face um, when um, their, you know, an avoidance action comes up or the threat of an avoidance action? Right, and they want to try to avoid the avoidance action. Right. Um, the, Davis folk, the Davis folks, of uh, the team of Scheibel, Pirano, and McGreer, uh, McGreel did that chapter, and they did a good job. Um, they lay out all the different um, contexts avoidant action can be brought, whether it's the tri trustees, um, hypothetical statuses, uh, a, a statutory lien, uh, whether it's a preference or, or, or a fraudulent conveyance. Um, they walk you through the elements of all those different types of avoidance actions and, uh, you know, get in a little in depth into the fraudulent transfers, um, challenges. That, that lenders and their uh, attorneys come across when when the loan uh, has issues prior to bankruptcy and, and, and you enter into a forbearance period trying to ward off a bankruptcy, you might take additional collateral um, and, and the, they, the authors take a look at, at how in bankruptcy those, those have been challenged as, as fraudulent conveyances because the, uh, the loan's already been advanced. So, so what's the consideration for um, taking additional liens uh, or an additional collateral? And they walk you through the steps of litigating those avoidance actions, um, the procedural issues, uh, standing issues, defenses um, that uh, the practitioner is going to uh, encounter, much like you talked about having it being helpful for navigating your way through a 363 sale, this chapter will help the practitioner navigate through any avoidance action. So, so another great topic for secure creditors to be aware of, um, at least as they're navigating the world of bankruptcy. Um, and then the last two uh, chapters of the book you both authored, um, so I'm sure you're intimately familiar with. Um, the first of the last chapter addresses the um, issues that arise with secured creditors during plan confirmation. Uh, can you discuss briefly some of those issues? Sure, I'm going to take that one on, and, and, and we spend a great deal of time in our chapter talking about the different reasons for separate classification, um, noting that courts have always required a good business reason, a reasonable or rational justification, uh, so to speak, uh, or a legitimate business or economic justification to divide classes, uh, because as you probably are, or I think everyone would be aware, uh, oftentimes we're trying to find reasons to separate creditors, maybe to get an accepting class. But uh, we go into separate classification issues, uh, trying to separate them based upon a deficiency claim versus an unsecured claim. Uh, we talk about separate classifications where the monies are guaranteed by a third party or secured by non-estate collateral. Uh, again, another one is uh, separate classifications that might be subject to litigation or set off because those are different types of claims than might be found in just your normal vendor claim. Also, we talk in the particular chapter about trying to separate uh, essential trade creditors into a different type of, uh, uh, into a different class. Uh, then we do go into the fair and equitable test. Uh, under 1129B, uh, we also uh, talk about uh, in the chapter uh, what's the proper rate, uh, interest rate. We spend a great deal of time on the till rate analysis. Uh, 
and uh, talk about the three approaches that were entailed, the uh, uh, efficient market rate of interest, which, by the way, the majority, along with Judge Justice Thomas, ultimately approved. We talked about the chorus loan approach, which was talked about, and then the contract rate approach, which was discussed in the dissent by Justice Scalia, and, and, and analyze exactly, uh, you know, what can you do, and, if, and then there is discussions regarding uh, the famous footnote about, well, maybe you can use these in Chapter 11s, too. So uh, interest rates take up a lot. So we have classification and, and, and how you uh, and what interest rate you can apply on a payout. We spend many pages in this chapter trying to explain 1111B and when and when not you can use it. Uh, and then we have a separate uh, section on uh, what happens if the classification is deemed to be improper? Uh, you can possibly lose your ability to have an accepting class if you've misclassified. So we do get into that too. So the point of the Chapter 11 uh, chapter, uh, which uh, we entitled uh, Classifications Under Chapter 11, is to really go in and talk about what does your plan, what should your plan contain, and then take it from there through the different parts we've just discussed, Amy. And that's very helpful for a practitioner to, to know all that. Um, well, so, Michelle, the last chapter of the book is um, relates to consumer cases. And as Mark mentioned, this was a add-on to the book um, that's unique. And I think it's, uh, I agree that I think it's a, a great thing to have in a secured credit book um, because there are issues that come up um, for secured creditors in consumer cases. And one issue that you discuss in the book that's been a hot topic is lien stripping. And, Michelle, can you lay out the issue for us regarding some of the lien stripping issues in consumer cases? Sure. Yeah. Lien stripping basically takes away the collateral for the secured creditor, um, and it's been an issue in consumer cases, um, especially recently with the Supreme Court taking on Chapter 7 lien stripping. Um, it's, it's important to the junior mortgage market, mostly. Uh, a lot of the lien stripping cases deal with those second or, or, or junior mortgages, and whether they have any value or not, or you know whether they actually are secured claims or not, um, you know, as, as the Nobleman case uh, famously set the standard that if it's secured by even one dollar, <laughs> then it's secured. Um, since then, there's been um, a lot of efforts by uh, Consumer Debtor Council to um, remove those liens make it a little bit easier for their debtors when they come out of bankruptcy if they, if they don't have those um, junior liens on, on their collateral. Um, and, and the Supreme Court found that uh, the junior mortgages cannot be stripped off in a Chapter 7. Um, it's still a, a little bit questionable in a Chapter 20, which of course is the filing of a Chapter 7 where, where you come back, uh, you, you come through with the, the lien still intact, it rides through. Um, and then you want to try to deal with it as a claim in, in Chapter 13. Again, that was nobleman. If there's one dollar of, of secu uh, value secured, then, then you cannot strip it. But if you are so underwater on your first, um, can you strip off that that second lien that that does not really attach to any value in the in, in the property? And, and uh, after nobleman, you know, it's been common practice in Chapter 13 that you can. 
So the nuance in, in Chapter 20 is, is that you don't get the discharge in a Chapter 13 that, that immediately follows a Chapter 7. And, and so there's mixed views on whether, you know, the effect of the, not, the debtor not being able to discharge makes that uh, a lien, junior lien, something that you can strip off or, or if the, the, the debtor is going to emerge from bankruptcy with that lien still there. Um, and obviously you have to make a decision about keeping the property and, and, and paying both liens or, or however many liens are on it, or maybe it, it, it's, it's a time to make the decision to surrender it. So that, I mean, that's very helpful. Um, you do lay that the, I, the last chapter of the book lays those issues out um, in pretty clear format for um, practitioners and also, you know, secured lenders that work in consumer cases. Um, I know there's so many, this book is so detailed and uh, there's so many more, so many more things we could talk about. Um, but is there anything I missed that you want to hit on that, um, that uh, is important to let our listeners know uh, that's in the book? Well, we, well, you didn't miss it, but I did want to give a shout out to the authors. There, there, there's eight authors, and they put a lot of time and effort into it and, and really produced a great product. So really happy to have worked with these individuals. It was truly an honor, and, and their, their work product is, is really outstanding. Well, it's a great book that you all should be proud of. And um, thank you so much, for uh, Michelle and Mark, for joining us today and for all your hard work on the book. Um, and we appreciate you having us having, we appreciate having you in the studio. Uh, for those of you who are listening, if you're interested in purchasing How Secured Are You? Um, you can do so at ABI's bookstore at abi.org. So thanks to everyone for listening. Until next time, this is Amy Quackenboss wishing you well. 